Hello and welcome to Two Pre-Sales in a Pod, your authentic global voice for the pre-sales and buyer enablement world. And we have some fun along the way too. So thanks for joining us and don't forget to find out our top tips on today's topic at the end. Hello and welcome to episode 58 of Two Pre-Sales in a Pod and you're joined by myself, Adam Freeman. We've got Don Carmichael. Hi, Don. Hello. This is so exciting. So exciting. (laughs) A great one today. You're tuned in for a great, great episode today. So we have an outstanding guest today. We've surpassed ourselves. So we have got the one and only Mr. Matt Dixon. Matt, very warm welcome to the show. Do you want to kind of introduce yourself to the very few people who won't know who you are? Sure. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you guys for inviting me. And all I've got to say is if, if this makes you excited, you need to get out more. And develop some better <laughs> <laughs> well, <Yeah>. Probably true. <laughs> But um, yeah, so uh, for the audience, Matt Dixon, um, I am a uh, founding partner of a company called DCM Insights uh, based in the U.S. And um, I'm a co-author of uh, a few books uh, that the audience may be familiar with, The uh, the Challenger Sale, The Challenger Customer, and a a book actually you're probably not familiar with in the customer experience space called The Effortless Experience. But I think today we're going to talk about a new, uh, I'm a glutton for punishment. So there's a new book coming out. I think we're going to talk a little bit about that today. That, that's fantastic. So are you, we're going to get onto this thing, your new book called The Jolt Effect, uh, The Problem of No Decision. It's absolutely worth though, just going back, you know, the, the Challenger thing, because somebody told me recently that the Challenger, you know, sale, the technique, teach, tailor, take control, anyone who's been on a course, there's a lot of people who've been on, on the course, um, you know, well done to all of you. Um, but someone told me recently that genuinely Challenger was probably the only new kind of, you know, sales methodology related technique, only real new one in the last maybe, you know, 20 to 30 years, you know, it, it was that revolutionary and, you know, and it really, you know, we're going to come on to a book called The Jolt Effect, but that was a massive jolt when you published that as well. Yeah, well, th- thank you. And, and I think um, one of the things that is unique, and this is this is certainly true of The Jolt Effect, is you know, unlike um, unlike you guys, and I think unlike a lot of um, uh, the experts out there, we are not. So my my co-author and I are not salespeople, nor were my co-authors on the other books. We're researchers, and so I think um, that helped us bring in maybe an outside perspective a little bit, and and be able to put kind of a lot of what was uh, standard practice. I think back when, if I think I think back on the Challenger sale, what was standard practice in sales, kind of put it to the side. We had no vested interest, no ax to grind, but go in and test it with data. And that's what we've done as well in the new book. But uh, but it, it's been exciting to see the impact that challengers had on the on the market. And, and I'm humbled and honored by your by your comments there. So talk to us. So the new book, what's what's it about? Um, why do people yeah. read it, right? Yeah, it's well, it's about this problem of uh, no decision, which I think um, we'd probably all agree is the bane of the salesperson's existence. And j- just to be very clear, we're talking about those opportunities um, where we go through the entire sales process, the entire sales motion with the customer, only to end up in this, you know, wasteland where we get ghosted. The customer stops showing up for, you know, calls. They stop responding to our emails. If they do, they offer very curt responses. Maybe they kick it out, say, now is not the right time. Let's pick up the conversation next quarter or next year. You know, in our research, we found anywhere between 40 and 60% of uh, all opportunities end up lost to no decision, which is, if you think about it as a salesperson, or if you're a manager or a leader listening to this podcast, 
think about the productivity loss um, to spend so much time, not, not to say to, or to say nothing of your customer's time, right? And in in that of their organization, but think about the impact that has on all of us. And what if we could figure out a way to do a few things, to figure out what are those opportunities that are likely to be lost to no decision, but we can't tell right now, but what if we could figure that out sooner? What if there are ways to dislodge some of those opportunities and get them across the line, right? Um, uh, and recoup some of that lost that lost productivity. In that world, you know, a lot of a lot of what we tend to spend time on generating leads and demand, you know, demand gen, all these things are are actually not the thing we should be focusing on because there's lots of latent opportunities sitting in all of our pipelines right now. So uh, that's really, really fascinating. I cannot wait to read it. Uh, it is. Uh, I've got my. Amazon page ready to uh, click and pre-order, which is great, great fun. September the 22nd. Um, so uh, not, we can hold, by the way, Mark, not, you want to pause, go ahead and do that now. That's fine. <laughs> so, um, it's really fascinating because this, this idea of no decision, surely the, that means that there's been a company that has wanted to change in some way mm. and has given up. Mm. Or, or they've just decided that, that it's not for now. So the, the, those problems, I would imagine, in the most part, haven't gone away. Mm-hmm. So what's your take then on the fact that even though the no decision means no sale for the vendor, the no decision must surely then mean no change for the buyer? Right. You're, no, you're quite right. And so what? So here's what I would... Um, so I, I, I back up a little bit. First of all, what I'd say is the... Um, the problem of no decision, I think, and maybe we could put a pin in this and we can come back to it in a little bit, but I think this problem is going to get worse, not better um, over time, just because of s- sort of environmental factors beyond any of our control. But we'll get to that in a moment. If I were to back up for, for a second, what I would say is no decision is sort of this shorthand for salespeople. You know, when they mark a, an opportunity, you know, close, lost, no decision it turns out that can mean multiple things. And, and rightly, I think a lot of observers will say, well, look, if the customer chooses to stay with their status quo, right? So that might be their, their current vendor. It might be their homegrown solution. It might be that they have no solution that does what your solution does. And maybe they use a basic version of your product, not a premium version, um, whatever the status quo is. But the customer may make a choice that what they do today is good enough and they choose not to change. Um, that itself is a decision. So in, in some ways, it's not a no decision. It is a decision. It feels like no decision to the salesperson because the customer, as I said, will often not tell us that they have decided to stick with their status quo. Instead, they they ghost us. They kind of they dangle out the carrot and say, well, maybe let's pick up the conversation later on next year, et cetera. Um, but what we what we found is, to be more precise, when we break down um, uh, these losses to quote unquote, no decision, what we find is that there are two types of losses to no decision. The first one is the one that salespeople are quite familiar with. And this is a loss to the status quo. This is when the customer says, uh, and you're quite right, Mark, they say either um, I don't buy that your solution is demonstrably superior to what we do today. Um, I don't believe the change is really worth it. If we, the expression here would be the juice is not worth the squeeze, right? The, it's going to take a lot of effort and investment. It's just not worth it. Or um, maybe, you know, we're actually quite happy with what we do today. It's, it's fine. What we do today is good enough. That is a loss to the status quo. And, and as salespeople, what we've always been taught is if a customer gets cold feet, if they start to hem and haw and they end up in this 
lost to no decision land is because you didn't beat their status quo. You have not given them a good enough reason to change. But we actually found is that that was only 44% of the losses to no decision. It's less than half, right? 56% of the time, it's not because the customer prefers their status quo, it's because they're struggling with something else, which we call customer indecision. So this is not a preference for the status quo. This is their indecisiveness about how to change the status quo. And so when we unpack that, we get into the nuances of what really the customer is struggling with, which is what makes the story so fascinating and why I think this problem is actually going to get a lot worse. So, John, I've got two questions. I'm going to cheat slightly. (laughs) One one was, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about um, the research that you did, because I think, was it thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of sales conversations that have gone into this? And and, and we're kind of in a world where, um, you know, if you kind of look, there's there's, uh, companies like Gong, who who will publicize some of their research, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that looks at different conversations. And we're in an amazing world because of the use of things like natural language processing and, you know, machine learning, you know, artificial intelligence, the ability to take these massive amounts of data and actually pull out some, you know, learnings from them. And, and some of them are quite shocking. So I wondered if you could talk about, you know, talk about that research, how you got sure. millions of conversations. But can I cheat slightly? I was also... The other thing, talking about, you know, no decision, it struck me was that um, a lot of the time, you know, like you said, there's not an event where where suddenly the client says or the buyer says, do you know what, we're not going to make it, we can't make a decision. It just drifts, doesn't it? It just drifts off and, you know, the salesperson is, you know, still ebullient, you know, confident, being positive about it. You know, it's still sitting there in the kind of forecast and it just drifts off into the the future. Um, And, you know, sometimes there's a gambling mentality to it, which is, well, if we'd only put more effort into it, you know, maybe we could have forced the decision. And all it does is just increase the massive cost of sale. And, you know, from ours, you know, our role as a, you know, a sales service role, you know, pre-sales, it's just, you know, massive opportunity cost. All the things we could have been doing, working on deals that that would actually close. Um, Anyway, sorry, unpack that. There's a lot there. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me hit your first um, uh, comment on or your question about the, the research. So we we all remember March of 2020, um, at least in the States. I don't know what uh, lockdown was like in, in um, your neck of the woods, but I know in the States, this was the time where everyone was watching a lot of Netflix and Tiger King was quite popular and we were learning to bake sourdough bread and you know these sorts of things. And so um, this was uh, this was right around the time that um, because we're nerds and we're, we're research geeks, um, my co-author and I, Ted McKenna, we, we had this realization Look, we, we've always been huge fans and admirers of Neil Rackham and um, what he and his team did and spin selling. You know, the thought of sitting in on 35,000 sales conversations across a decade with a, you know, was just, if we could study sales that way, we would, uh, we would have done it. The problem is I could never get anybody to want to pay for that research. And so, I, um, so, but when March of 2020 rolled around, everything changed in sales, as we all remember. Um, sales went 100% virtual literally overnight. Now, Ted and I were working at a company called Tether, which was uh, is an Austin-based conversation intelligence company. So much like Gong and, and, and Chorus and these kinds of platforms, Tether is a very sophisticated machine learning platform using natural language processing, looking at how do we take complex unstructured audio, turn it into unstructured text, and then mine it for insights. And so Ted and I had this realization that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for sales researchers. 
we may never see this again in our lifetimes. We're 100% of sales calls, the boring ones and the mundane ones, and the really important, critical you know, uh, calls all are happening on Zoom and Teams and WebEx. And so we partnered with several dozen companies, collected two and a half million sales conversations and studied them using uh, Tether's platform. And we did it because the problem with that, all that data is it can be like, you know, it's, uh, it, it can be overwhelming. It'd be like boiling the ocean. So we went at this data with this specific question, why do we lose to no decision? And what do the best salespeople do to avoid that happening to them? And so we went in with a very targeted um, uh, set of questions. Your, to your second point, uh, Donna, you're, you're quite right. It doesn't, you know, customers are quite comfortable actually telling us you've lost to a competitor or they're quite comfortable telling us we don't think your solution is any good or we tried it and it didn't work out for us or, you know, um, uh, any number of kind of definitive rational explanations for, for why they're not going to buy. And surely a chunk of our lost opportunities fall into those categories. But what they don't do is talk about how they personally are indecisive and can't make a decision and they're worried about failing and all that. like they don't get T-shirts printed up saying, hey, unfortunately, like I am incapable of pulling the trigger on this decision. But it turns out it's a huge percentage of our losses. Now, I, I mentioned before, so if you think about no decision losses falling into two buckets, you've got your losses to the status quo. This is quite, again, quite literally where the customer says, I prefer what we do today to what your to your solution. I like your solution better, but it's not a compelling enough alternative. It's not a big enough improvement to what we do today. Or I see the gap between what we do today and what you're talking about, but too, or life is too short. We don't have the time and resources to commit to that journey. We just, we can't do it. Now, the second category, again, almost 60%, uh, 56% to be specific, of opportunities are lost not to the status quo, but to indecision. And when people look at that, they they or hear that, they say, well, what's the difference? You're telling me I either lost to a preference for the status quo or I lost to indecision about changing the status quo. But what's the difference? So if we unpack indecision, it falls into three specific types. The first one is where the customer struggles with what specifically to buy. So they may agree that they want to buy your solution, but the problem is they don't know if it's configuration A, B, or C. They don't know if they should add the professional services or not. They don't know if they should have a three-year contract or a five-year contract. They don't know if they should deploy it enterprise-wide or in a narrow uh, deployment to start. So there are a lot of questions they have, and they're worried about picking the wrong option and then not being able to uh, backtrack from that decision. The second source of indecision is a lack of information. This is where the customer struggles with feeling in the dark. They feel like this is a complex decision. It's a complex technology, perhaps. Uh, we've never bought anything like this before. And we need to do our research. We need to read all the Gartner reports. We need to read all the Forrester reports. I need to talk to people in my network. We need to do all the research. We need to read all the white papers. And until I feel confident uh, that I've done enough research, I can't actually pull the trigger on this. So the third type of indecision is what we call outcome uncertainty. Outcome uncertainty is where the customer feels like they have no assurance of success, that they may agree with your ROI projections. They may say, this is, you know, this looks like it'll be great for our company. The, the proof of concept, the pilot was fantastic, but what if it goes sideways? And if it goes sideways on us, somebody's head is going to roll. And the person whose head's going to roll first is the person whose name is on the contract, and that's me. So what guarantee do I have that I have a safety net here, that, that you are going to have our back, that you're going to make sure this works out for us? So those are the three sources of indecision. What's interesting about those is that the status quo does not make an appearance in any of those three. You can easily see where there could be a customer who says, 
I want to abandon ship on the status quo. I want to move forward with your solution. But nevertheless, they're worried that I'm picking the wrong configuration. I haven't done enough research or have no assurance of success and will then end up lost to no decision because we haven't dealt with those problems. I, that's absolutely fascinating. It leads me to a natural question here, and I'm thinking out loud, is I've always associated split decision with indecision. And what I mean by that is all of the data points that we, we read about are telling us that the buying group or the influential people in a company is getting larger, whether that's the accessibility to technology, the platforms we can demo on. It's not really a small committee anymore led by an influential person. It seems to be wider than that now. Yeah. And I've always associated sp split decision in an organization with no decision because how, as a business leader, do you bring people together to deliver a project when the committee cannot agree? Yeah. Would you subscribe to that? Is that something you resonate with? Do your data points kind of support that? I think so. You know, so here's what I would um, what I would say. So we, you know, some of the listeners may be familiar with the Challenger customer, which came out uh, after the Challenger sale. In that book, we wrote about that problem uh, that you're talking about, Adam. Uh, this problem of buying committees and how they're getting bigger. As an aside, I actually think that's gotten a lot worse with virtual selling because there's no there's no cost to the customer to invite everybody to the demo, right? And now suddenly you have a buying committee that used to be 10 people, which is hard enough. Now it's 20 people, right? So there's, in the likelihood that somebody's going to raise their hand and say, I don't agree, it goes up dramatically as you add more people to the, um, the buying committee. What I would say is that sometimes buying committees, as we wrote about in the Challenger customer, struggle with um, even whether to depart from the status quo. And that was actually the problem we wrote about is how do you get this dysfunctional often uh, a diverse group of different stakeholders in a company together to agree on a way to move forward. But I think that buying committee can also struggle as a group and at an individual level with indecision. And so actually it's, it's almost a compounding effect, right? Um, imagine uh, having a buying committee on the one hand, struggling with whether we should leave the status quo, whether we should move forward with this vendor, whether we should consider the solution, but then also worried about having disagreements about, well, one member of the buying committee thinks configuration A is the best, and another one thinks configuration B is the best. And then another member of the buying committee shows up at the meeting and says, hey, have you guys read this latest white paper from Gartner? Because it talks about these new vendors that we haven't talked to before, and we really need to leave no stone unturned. And then yet somebody else says, guys, this is a lot of money. This is a big risk for our company. Uh, what if this doesn't work out? Like, I don't want to be, you know, by the way, as, as we talk about in the book, nobody ever got fired for maintaining the status quo, but people do get fired for changing it and having it not work out. So, you know. Yeah, gosh, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is. I, 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 <laughs> one of the things that we talk about as a podcast series and have increasingly been talking about is kind of buyer enablement. Yes. And I, I was just wondering if there was a connection here with the, you know, anticipating indecision. And it's that the, what's what you do about anticipating that this indecision could could happen or identifying that it may happen. Um, you know, does that connect through to kind of buyer enablement? I'd, yes. I'd love to know what you think about that. I do. I do think it connects uh, quite nicely, actually. Um, you know, if I were to uh, just uh, back up for a second, Don, what I would say is the, you know, one of the facts I are finding, this was sobering for us to, to see this. If we think about for a moment, you know, in sales, I think we, we work our customer through a pretty standard process of they're in their status quo. The first step in the journey is to get them to agree on a vision, right? To agree with our vision, to move, to agree, to leave the status quo and to move forward with our solution. 
But then the last part of the journey is to get them to actually buy it. And what we all know is that a funny thing happens between where they state their intent and where they actually sign on the dotted line. And this is where they start to get cold feet. Uh, they start to hem and haw. They wring their hands. They worry they're they're going to make a mistake. They they start to backtrack uh, on their decision, et cetera. And what we've taught salespeople for years, because salespeople live in a world where the only reason a customer could be getting cold feet, they've been taught for many, many years, is because you have not beaten their status quo. So what do they do in those situations? Well, they do one of two things. They go back and they try to reconvince the customer of the rosy projections of their ROI calculation and how great things are going to be on the other side. You must not really understand how amazing our solution is, or you must not fully appreciate all the benefits that we're going to bring to your organization. And when the carrot doesn't work, they put the carrot away and they break out the stick, right? So they go to FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And so what they're trying to do is scare the customer into action. You don't understand how bad things are going to be if you don't move forward. Your competitors are opening up a gap on you in the marketplace. Your, your team hates you for making them use this legacy solution. You know, you told me that early on. These problems are not going to solve themselves. So we try to create that burning platform to get the customer to move forward. But what was sobering for us to find is that that is the default playbook. 73% of the time we found in our, our analysis, when customers express signs of cold feet, salespeople break out their beat the status quo hammer and every wavering customer looks like a nail and they just go to town but it actually backfires 84% of the time. So 84% of the time, it actually makes the situation worse, not better. And now that we've unpacked that, you know what, this customer, when you're trying to convince them of the cost of inaction, it turns out what they're worried about is not the cost of inaction, it's what might be go wrong through action, right? What, what if I do something, but it may ends up being a mistake. I picked the wrong configuration, I bought something without doing enough research, or I had no guarantee of success. And so what we talk about in the book is that you actually need two playbooks in sales. And, and the, the first one, of course, is you've got to beat the customer's status quo. Look, if, if you don't convince them to depart their status quo, you're not going to sell anything. It's like the Monopoly game. You will not pass go, nor will you collect $200 for you know, doing so. Um, this is the first stop in the sale. And much of what we've written on in the past in the challenger sale, the challenger customer is about that part of the journey, convincing cus the customer of, of the, the cost of inaction moving forward um, and why they have, have to do it. But once you've gotten the customer to express their intent and you've beaten the status quo, the next thing you have to do is overcome indecision. Now, what I'd say is that beating the status quo is all about dialing up the fear of not purchasing. But overcoming indecision is different. It's about dialing down the fear of purchasing. And that's where I think buyer enablement really comes in, because what we're talking about and what this, this jolt approach we're talking about are the things that high-performing sellers have figured out, which I think are, are buyer enablement's a perfect description, actually, because what they're doing is shifting from salesperson to a buyer's agent, a, an, somebody who can enable the buyer to actually move forward and take action and overcome these fears that they have that are going to otherwise prevent them from moving forward. So overcoming those fears, it seems to happen, and I'm sure there's a percentage, and it's probably in the book, <laughs> um, seems to happen at the latter stages mm. of, um, of, of the deal. Um, what's your recommendation then? If we know that it is likely, were this uh, risk to raise its, raise its ugly head, mm -hmm. At what point through all of the rest of the journey should we be bringing in 
these safety measures that won't appear as safety measures when we bring them, but will form a basis that when you get to that later stage will be what you build your your case of for survival on. Yeah, I you know this is one of those moments where um, audio uh, audio only doesn't help because I would what I would show you is an image and I encourage everyone to go check it out in the book of course. Um, but there's a very simple way we've depicted this because I, I think your I think your question is spot on and I think what a lot of people when they hear these things I think they sort of associate them with those kind of the final, I know this is going to play well with an international audience, but the final mile, as we talk about the final kilometer in our sale, of course, right? Um, what happens in that 11th hour, in that you know final mile where the customer starts to get nervous, right? And they start to feel, experience these fears. Mm. What we talk about though is overcoming indecision is actually something that happens from the very first sales interaction. Um, now, um, the way you'd, you'd envision this is that we, if we've got two playbooks as a salesperson, the primary playbook in the early going is beating the status quo. We've just got to give the customer a reason to move forward. If they see no reason, see no value, we're not selling anything. But as we start to do so, and as the customer starts to express their intent, what starts to recede from their mind is um, that their, their preference for the status quo, but what starts to take its place is their, their indecision. And so we've, we've got to slowly start to put away that status quo playbook and then bring in our overcoming decision playbook. What we found is in our analysis, high-performing salespeople are doing this literally in the very first call. And some of the things they're doing, um, Mark, is they're trying to understand the, the breadth and depth and intensity of that customer's indecision. Because the reality is some customers will never get off the fence, no matter how good of an opportunity they look like on paper. Um, we can assess, and high performers told us when we interviewed them, they can look for signs of indecisiveness from the you know right after they exchange pleasantries and talk about the weather. The customer will start revealing their level of indecisiveness, and we can start distilling that. And what high performers tell us is, look, we're not going. I I cannot afford to chase garbage trucks, and so if I see signs that this customer might be able to buy, but they're not able to decide. I will either deprioritize them or potentially not pursue them at all. Now, some of these other things we talk about in the methodology, which we can get into here, um, start to come in earlier on in the sale, Not maybe not in the first interaction, but as we start getting through those first demos and into the POCs and the pilots, we start to use some of the other jolt skills. And, and you're right, though, some of the things we talk about in the book are used for closing, right? These are things to deal with 11th hour issues like, I have no assurance of success. This is going to cost our company more than we've ever spent on a, you know, on a solution in our, our entire history. I cannot have this go badly. I need some guarantee. And those will feel like more, more like 11th hour things that are, that are hard to distill early on. But this Joel playbook, which again, we can unpack in a bit more detail if we'd like, um, we, start see, we see it playing out from the very first sales interaction to the last. And by the end, it's really the primary posture is enabling that buyer, shifting from salesperson to buyer's agent or buyer enabler, um, if that makes sense. I'd, I'd love to explore this a little bit more for a couple of minutes, <laughs> if that's okay. Uh, so we were talking about the first sales interaction there. Um, and I was kind of immediately thinking, you know, in the, buyer, the kind of things we're talking about with buyer enablement is that actually this has all got to go a lot further left. 
Um, so Brent, I think, did this thing, what was it, about the unified commercial engine, that there might yeah, be yeah. a future where there isn't kind of like a marketing, you know, BDR and kind of sales and everything. Is the, it's actually all the one same one thing. Um, and actually, if you think about that, it's probably all the whole thing is a marketing play. But mm-hmm. it's all about going further left. And if two-thirds, you know, I think all of us now know, you know, whatever it is, you know, two-thirds of the buying journey is happening before we know it. That, that means there's a lot more content we need to kind of inject in to this two thirds where we don't, you know, there is no sales interaction. So, you know, so the things you're talking about there, should we be preparing, uh, you know, buyers, uh, stakeholders, decision makers, even before there's a sale, first sales interaction? Yeah, you're right. And in, in fact, um, you know, you mentioned some of uh, Brent's work there. Um, I think that you may, the listeners um, here may be familiar with the article he wrote in HBR around sense making for sales which is all about the problem of too much information. But remember, uh, uh, indecision, one of the big drivers of that was that the customer feeling like they're still in the dark, they've not done enough research, they haven't done enough homework. That's the same problem that, that Brent and team write about. And if you remember from that article, or your listeners remember, he talked a lot about how best marketing teams are actually building uh, sort of content funnels or learning journeys for the customer that the customer can start consuming content specifically engineered to get them to not over-research, but give them just enough content, not all from us as a supplier, but um, to show credibility and induce confidence uh, to, to uh, that there's content from other suppliers too, or third-party experts. And we orchestrate in a way that's designed to get our customer to instill that, if you will, sense of uh, self-efficacy, right? I can do this. I know enough now to make this decision. It's a very elegant solution. And you're quite right, Don. It, it, this kind of work does take place above the funnel, right? Even before we start talking to the customers, is there a way we can start getting them out of this analysis paralysis mindset, which we know from our research left to their own devices, customers will endlessly consume content. And when we indulge their request to do so, our conversion rates really, really suffer. And uh, Jolt sellers um, are very good at boxing in that, that um, information orchestrating those learning journeys and uh, establishing themselves as subject matter experts. But you're right. The organization can do a lot of that legwork above the funnel for the salesperson. So that when the customer shows up, they've consumed the information that we know is going to give them the, the confidence and the self-efficacy um, that they believe they can move forward. And they don't feel like they've got to read every single thing on earth because I've read enough and I now feel savvy enough about this decision. Really quick question for me. I'm just, I'm half thinking about when you're talking about the qualification stage that we have in sales, which for a lot of sellers is the handshake between the marketing team and, and the sales yeah. team. That's where their their leads are, are qualified to an extent. Do Jolt sellers do something different? Because at the minute, I'm struggling with the, the whole relevance of BANT as a qualification method. Yeah, yeah. I'm struggling yeah. with the relevance of even medic. I, I think there's something missing there from the profession. Yeah. Yeah. Would your data and your jolt work, would it would that lead to that same assessment? I, I think so. So I think that um, one of the problems with with a lot of the established, I think, qualification or slash disqualification criteria or, is that they are all built around the the customer's ability to buy, right? Uh, do they have the budget, the authority, the need, the timing, all these kinds of things? That is fundamentally about: Have you given them a reason to change? Have you, you know, have they agreed to do so? Do they have the budget? Do they have the time and the authority to make that decision? All that good stuff we're very familiar with. But nowhere in those criteria are other issues that we know. Again, fifty-six percent of the time, the customer is not struggling with those things. They're struggling with instead 
I feel like I might be picking the wrong thing. I haven't done enough homework or I have no assurance of success. And so how do we understand whether our customer is uh, at a personal level indecisive, right? Are they showing markers of somebody who's not geared to be able to make a big decision like this? Um, where is that indecision coming from? Are there amplifiers, time, intensity, urgency, importance of the decision that are going to make that worse? And so these are things that we really can be focused on very early on. So I think you're right. I think we've only actually captured half of what we should be focused on from a from a qualification standpoint. Well, I mean, if we could do a 19-hour podcast next time and invite you back, Matthew, that would be wonderful. Because uh, so usually these podcasts, the conversation flows around and we've all got lots of ideas and we're chatting and all the rest of it. And Adam and Don and me, we're just sitting here just like lapping it up. It's <laughs> really, really refreshing, lovely. It's great information. And, and uh, I'm very glad that you've written it down. Thank you. Um, because then we can get back to it later. Um, of course, I bet you didn't realize you'd be literally uh, uh, narrating your book uh, on through through podcasts and, uh, and other interviews and all the rest of it. But we really appreciate you having having you here. Um, we've almost almost come to the time of the end of the podcast now, so let's go a quick whip around the room for uh, your top tips, uh, Don. What am, it was what not even a top tip. I'm just aghast that 40 to 60% of deals are lost to kind of no decision and that we haven't put more effort into this before. Uh, you yeah. know, the, the, something like there hasn't been a jolt before that. And um, I'm guessing the reason is, is because, you know, the, the, the tool, the voluminous amount of data that you need to pull together and do machine learning over it to, you know, to find out what really is going on. You know, those tools haven't really been available before and researchers like yourself, you know, not being able to kind of analyze it. But, you know, I, I think just those that number, 40 to 60 percent of deals lost to no decision that that's your motivator if anybody you know if you're in pre-sales sales whatever whoever's listening to this that's why you need to get interested in this yeah that's right i i well said and i actually um i'm not a uh a an astrophysicist but i liken it to the you know you, you guys have been seeing these amazing images from the the new telescope they launched a million miles from the moon and it's one of those things i mean you're quite right we didn't know that this was a thing we didn't know there was a second playbook required for us as salespeople because we didn't have the technology to go study it in this way. And arguably, these things were always there. But I would argue that, again, they're going to get worse. Um, it's not like the amount of information is go becoming less. Nobody's going to unplug the internet. The number of options offered by suppliers is just going up. And the cost and risk of all of our solutions is increasing as well, which amps up that outcome uncertainty and the, the customer getting nervous about making what is actually a really big and, and risky decision. So these things are not going away. And I think if we fast forward the, the clock, we're going to see that uh, that indecision is actually our, has become now our big enemy in sales, much more so than, than beating the status quo. I think my actual insight, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving this with two thoughts. One is I'm going to go and play around with my win ratios because I think having a raw win ratio doesn't kind of cut it anymore because we've always held ourselves accountable to somewhere a 30 to 35% win ratio is 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 borderline what you aim for. Mm -hmm. I'm doing the very quick maths in my head and I'm thinking, well, that's a 75% competitive win ratio based on the fact that you're probably losing somewhere between 14, 50% minimum to no decision. That means actually you've got to beat your competition three times out of four to maintain what was previously perceived a decent win ratio. 
And I think we need to start separating as a profession, as a technical profession, the non, the indecision away from what competitive win analysis did you have, away from the indecision and then start to evaluate that. That's that's my takeaway as a leader. But I think the insights and the data points, I think I'm going to go and read Challenge a Customer again post-COVID because I think the lens I would read that with post-COVID would be wildly different to pre-COVID. Yeah. Um, so I am definitely going to do that. So, yeah. Fantastic. Oh, well, great top tips, Don, Adam, and Matt. Lovely to have you on. We'd love to love to have you back once we've all Lovely dived in more into the book, because I'm sure we'll have more questions. But Which is out in September the 22nd. It's called The Jolt Effect. It is. I, I, literally, I literally clicked uh, pre-order whilst, whilst we were talking. There we go. So there I didn't forget. <laughs> so... Thank you, everyone, for listening to Two Pre-Sales in a Pod. Thank you, Matt, for coming on from all of us. Thank you, guys. I hope you have a wonderful week. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Two Pre-Sales in a Pod. We'd love to hear from you on LinkedIn.